Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about how tech and innovation are building a better world. As usual, I'm your host, Paul Matsko. Or am I? Have I been replaced by a digital analog of Paul Matsko, an artificial intelligence that has all of my memories uploaded to the cloud that's simply been programmed to sound like Paul Matsko? Now, that seems unlikely given current technological limitations, but if we're able to overcome those limitations in the future, how would you truly know? And ultimately, what, if anything, makes a conscious person different from a conscious or, for that matter, unconscious AI? Is it me? Am I me? Who the hell am I? Well, now I'm a bit worried if I keep talking like this, I'll break down into mad gibbering, punctuated by the occasional wild yop howled out at an uncaring existential void. So instead, Aaron Powell and I are joined by someone with expertise in applying questions of consciousness uh, to and, and just the philosophy of personhood to artificial intelligence. Uh, Susan Schneider, uh, currently NASA's Baruch Bloomberg Chair of Astrobiology at the Library of Congress, uh, who holds a bevy of other academic postings around the globe, has a book coming out October 1st titled Artificial You, AI, and the Future of Your Mind. Welcome to the show, Susan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Now, you've coined the term mind design, I think, in the book to describe human interactions with artificial intelligence in the future. What does it mean to design a mind? Good question. Well, I think if you're designing a mind, you're designing something that is a conscious being, because I think that's a necessary feature of having a mind. To be conscious um, involves it feeling like something to be used. So when you um, smell the aroma of your morning coffee, when you see the rich hues of a sunset, when you feel the pain of stubbing your toe, those are all conscious experiences feels like something from the inside to be a sentient being. So if we define minds, that would mean creating synthetic beings that have the felt quality of experience. And I don't know if we can do it or not. I take a wait-and-see approach when it comes to artificial consciousness. What would it mean to design such a thing when it seems like this this central characteristic of it, namely its ability to have experiences, is at least appears to be inaccessible to us as designers. So like I can I can assume that Paul has a mind and has experiences, but I can't have experiences of his experiences. So I guess I can't really know that there are such experiences. So how would we go about designing something that requires it having those experiences if we can't really ever know if it's actually working. You just raised a classic philosophical problem called the problem of other minds. How do we know that the people around us are minded? I mean, maybe we're, say, in a computer simulation and we're the only sentient beings that exist. It, like, maybe I am alone <laughs> and everybody around me is a zombie. They um, aren't conscious at all. So, I mean, that's a philosophical thought experiment that is quite popular. Um, there is a soft answer that I think is actually pretty good to the question of how we know there could be other minds. Um, but, boy, it gets super difficult if we're talking about, in addition to that problem, you know, the problem of how we know just 
humans around us are sentient, um, it's really hard to ask the question and answer the question, how do we know that machines are minded? And here, I take a practical approach, actually, even though I'm a philosopher. Um, I aim to develop tests for determining whether machines are conscious. So I think that artificial consciousness is something we might be able to run tests for. Concerning how we find out whether humans have minds, I think it's really just inference to the best explanation. They have nervous systems like ours, so we can tell introspectively, each one of us can tell that we're conscious. It feels like something to be us. And I know that you have a similar nervous system, right? And I see your behavior, so I sort of infer from there that you must be conscious. I mean, that that's actually kind of sounds a bit like uh, an argument that you critique in the book, which is a simplistic notion that if you reproduce the exact same physical set of characteristics, um, so instead of a human brain that is wired in a particular way, we reproduce it in you know, maybe some other substrate in silicon or uh, in digital form. If if it's completely reproducible, it will be the same thing. It'll be the same consciousness, the same being. Um, is, is that similar to what you're saying here with because, you know, Aaron has a nervous system, you have a nervous system, therefore he must be minded? Yeah. I mean, the physical conditions are the same. I mean, I probably shouldn't have brought up the thought experiment of um, being in a simulation, though, because that's different. I mean, it could be that nobody has a nervous system. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's very similar. And I think the question here is, will we ever produce artificial intelligences that are isomorphic to us in every respect involving consciousness? And there, we don't even know if it's, you know, compatible with our best technology or even the laws of nature to do that. If it was, um, you know, I assume the machine would be conscious, but that's just a thought experiment. So what I'm worried about is whether the machines that we actually have the technological capacity to build would actually be conscious beings. And there, I think the issue is very nuanced. So I actually take a wait-and-see approach, and I think we have to look at the details of not just the substrate, you know, like whether the microchips see something like silicon or carbon nanotubes or whatnot, but also the architectural details of the machines. And I think there are reasons for and against actually developing conscious machines. Well, so that maybe that brings up the, the follow-up question, which is why does this matter, right? So like if we're, if we're setting out to build mines, presumably we're doing that in order to accomplish something. It might just be, you know, to see if we can, but we're building them, you know, Google's building an AI so that I can wake up in the morning and ask it what the weather is going to be. And as long as it can tell me accurately what the weather is going to be and engage in a convincing conversation, why does it matter if it's conscious or not? As long as all the, I guess, the outward signs look to me like consciousness, so I'm comfortable talking to it. So think about the human future. So if humans merge with AI the way that people like Elon Musk and Ray Kurzweil envision, then if machines can't be conscious, post-humans, i.e. humans who've merged, wouldn't be conscious beings. They 
wouldn't really have minds at all. So what we would be doing with our technology is extinguishing consciousness from homo sapiens and changing. I mean, we would no longer even technically be homo sapiens. Um, but I mean, those post-human beings wouldn't, in a sense, be an improvement on us. It wouldn't feel like anything to be them, even if they're vastly smarter than we are. So we have to think about what we value. Um, I mean, without consciousness, it won't feel like anything to be ultra smart. Um, nothing would really matter to a being that isn't sentient. So machine consciousness is ultra important when it comes to questions about the proper use of artificial intelligence technology. Like, do we want to merge with machines? It's also important in understanding the AIs that we create, even setting aside the human brain. So if we're creating ultra-sophisticated AIs, some of them look human. Like, take the Japanese androids, for example, that are being developed to take care of the elderly in Japan. The public is going to assume they're conscious because they look human, right? I call this the cute and fluffy fallacy, <laughs> right? If it's cute, if it's fluffy, oh, it's got to feel like something to be those creatures. And that, of course, makes a lot of sense in the biological domain, right? But we're talking about artifacts. So if we decide that a certain group of AI, maybe that's cute AIs, if you will, the fluffy AIs, they're conscious, then we're giving them rights, special legal consideration that conscious beings get. Well, they're trade-offs with other conscious beings in all sorts of cases, right? Like consider trolley problems. <laughs> you know, so we're going to be sacrificing humans in certain contexts for AIs that we think are conscious, but oops, we made a mistake, they're not. So I think we really carefully need to investigate the question of machine consciousness because androids that already look human are under development and people will be duped. Sentience is absolutely key no matter what moral system you have. And, you know, there have been thinkers like Peter Singer in the context of animal liberation who have rightly pointed out that if an animal is sentient, we have special obligations. So that's why I raised the issue of machine consciousness as being so central because it's really a question of what the class looks like when it comes to sentient beings. Would AI be in it? And would we be in it if we altered our brains, if we took out uh, parts of our brains responsible for conscious experience and replaced them with microchips, would we even be in that class? I wonder about the the psychology of this because we can – so we can take on the philosophical side. We can try to address the question of say like is an AI actually sentient or conscious? Is it not? But on the, the psychological side of like these things, the more these things are present in their, our lives and we interact with them, we're going to establish norms of interaction that will emerge uh, independent of – either independent of the answer to the consciousness question or well before we can get an answer to that question. And and I wonder how much of this – because you talked about the, the cute and fuzzy 
side of things and that we have like the pets and we treat them a certain way because they're cute and fuzzy and they interact with us and we we kind of assume consciousness into them even if in some absolute sense we can't be certain of it. But we don't have that with our laptops even though they do things. Um, is there – is there an angle to which embodiedness matters in kind of the psychology of our interactions with AIs so that if the – you mentioned like the robot, the, the Japanese robots that are helping elderly people, that simply by nature of them being embodied, having this physical form that we can interact with that makes us feel the same way as we're interacting with a pet or with a person, um, we're going to treat them as if they have consciousness in a way that maybe the – Google AI, which is present in you know a set of speakers throughout my house, but I can't hug it, even if it's much, much smarter and acts in a more conscious way, I'm kind of less likely to interact with it as a conscious thing because it doesn't like manifest in the category of things I'm used to as consciousness. Yeah. Um, so it could be that in order to build a conscious machine, it would need to be embodied Although I happen to think that we could give it a sort of VR reality so that it may not even physically need a body. But setting that issue aside, you're absolutely right that people will assume that something that is embodied and looks like us is sentient. And I also believe that we will establish cultural norms um, even before we understand whether they're conscious, although my hope is that we will hit the ground running and develop tests for determining whether machines are conscious. I think that um, it's natural for us to treat androids, for instance, with some sort of dignity because they look so much like us. And even if we understood that they weren't conscious, it would probably be a bad idea in society if people were acting abusively toward creatures that look like biological beings. I mean, it could, you know, kind of degrade our respect for sentient beings. So that's just a bad idea. But I think the cute and fluffy fallacy is super dangerous, um, precisely because we will treat androids with a certain level of respect, at least many of us will. And they may not have consciousness. And in that case, again, there will be trade-offs. So, you know, if you're on a trolley and on the left side, you if you take, you know, the left track, there are two humans. And if you take the right track, there are three androids. If everybody thinks the androids are conscious, Two humans will have died, but we will have made a mistake. It doesn't feel like anything to be the android. So Westworld depicts android abuse. And I think um, I went to South by Southwest to speak. And they actually had a sort of uh, a Westworld that they created. Isn't that funny? Um, but anyway... Um, would we ever really have anything like a Westworld with true violence rather than just actors, you know, um, in a nonviolent situation? And I think we shouldn't for lots of reasons, right? Um, but let me also add that um, at a point in which we don't know whether a being is conscious or not, like before we've developed 
test we can believe in for machine consciousness, we should probably apply something like a precautionary principle because it would be really bad, really catastrophic if we created, you know, an enslaved group and mistreated them. And, you know, even if we tweak their settings so that they want to be our slaves, um, that just sounds awful. I mean, it sounds like Brave New World, right? Yeah. Well, which is kind of the point of Westworld where, I mean, we it's when the audience realizes that the robots in Westworld are actually sentient, everyone, you know, your feeling is, oh, well, that's obviously wrong. But I think one of the broader points of the show is that what was going on in Westworld was wrong even before, even if none of the robots were sentient, that it brought out the worst in people, encouraged them to, and applying, I guess that applies to artificial intelligence outside of a TV show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the widespread abuse of humanoids would be very bad, or even, you know, in Blade Runner, they had um, AI animals. You know, if we saw people, you know, kicking around AI puppies. I mean, I think this stuff is a bad idea. Not just because I have a puppy here. But. <laughs> how, how far, though, do we take this precautionary principle? Because this is all, right now we're talking about it in application to stuff that's, you know, potentially coming. And, but if, if what we're looking at is like, there's kind of, I think there's two, there's two potential bad things that we've been talking about. One is the badness in terms of the behaviors that, we engage in and almost like kind of in an Aristotelian like habit formation sort of way. Like if I if I simply even if this thing isn't sentient, if I am using it as a way to practice being rude, then I'm likely to maybe be rude elsewhere in my life with, you know, actually sentient beings. I'm instilling bad habits, I suppose. That's bad in one way. Um, and then the other badness is the if we treat these things poorly and in fact it turns out that they were conscious, then we've committed some terrible wrong that we can't take back. But both of those, we can apply those forward to emerging technologies and things we might run into in the future. But it seems like we can also apply them backwards to existing and acceptable or largely acceptable behavior. So on the you know badness of habit stuff, does that mean that we shouldn't also be playing Fortnite or Call of Duty in which we are shooting at the <laughs> representations of people? Um, or does it mean – I mean does this mean that we have to be vegetarians um, or if like let's say the panpsychic – panpsychism is true where consciousness uh -oh. is – you know, like then suddenly like as there are people who believe that and they might be right that rocks and plants and trees and all that have – like, how, how far do we need to take this precautionary principle yeah. in both directions? Right. Okay. So I think in the book, um, I was thinking of the precautionary principle mostly in the context of AI that we don't know whether they're sentient or not. And until we do, we shouldn't put them in any circumstances where there'd be trade-offs with other right holders. Right holder. So um, that's what I meant in the book. Um, now, you asked really good questions, though. I mean, um, you know, you know, like about panpsychism. I mean, I'm okay eating a salad, right? VR. I mean, VR, I think it's important to ask that kind of a question. Um, at least, you know, again, I don't apply the precautionary principle so much to just interacting with 
human-like beings. I really apply it when we just don't know whether those beings in question are conscious. So, you know, when we're playing video games, we know they're not conscious, but you're right. There could be other reasons um, why we, you know, don't want to see, you know, human-like creatures hurt. Um, I think there have been debates like this about video games. I mean, when we get into VR that's extremely vivid and lifelike, I actually don't think it's a good idea that um, avatars get, you know, creatures inside of a VR program get abused for reasons that it would potentially be kind of diminishing our respect for sentience. You've mentioned a couple of times that that the possibility of tests to determine consciousness of these AIs. What would what would those tests potentially look like? Tononi um, and Christoph Koch and others have developed tests based on the integrated information theory, which is um, a mathematical measure that seeks to look at computational systems and determine whether that system is conscious. That's been influential. I actually am more skeptical about that. Um, so what I done uh, together with some others is looked at other ways of determining whether AIs are conscious. Um, together with Ed Turner at Princeton University, he's actually an astrophysicist and one of the people who uh, works on exoplanets and space images. Um, he and I developed a test that is actually a behavior-based question and answer test, but it looks for um, whether the machine kind of understands the felt quality of experience, whether it has a kind of sense of what it feels like to experience the world. So we have that test. We wrote a short little piece on that um, in Scientific American, um, if anybody wants to look at it in more detail. And I talk about it in the book. And then in addition to that, um, in a TED Talk and in the book, I talk about what I call the chip test. So in the chip test, um, I ask you to suppose that you replace part of your brain responsible for part or all of the neural basis of conscious experience with microchips. Then I ask, would it feel any different? Like, would you notice a sort of dimming of conscious experience or some sort of element of your consciousness just going away, like maybe visual consciousness. Um, and you might say, well, Susan, this is just a thought experiment. But the thing is, um, neural prosthetics are already under development for all sorts of brain disorders and injuries. So, um, for example, Ted Berger over at USC is developing the artificial hippocampus which is already in clinical trials in humans, right, with some success. Um, DARPA has been working on all sorts of invasive brain implant technologies for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, Alzheimer's, and whatnot. So suppose that in the process of treating patients, we stumble upon microchips that we think could help with parts of the brain that are responsible for consciousness in patients that have disorders. And so we try it out. Suppose it works. Well, 
in that case, I think it tells us that microchips are the right stuff, at least that kind of microchip that was used to be the underlying element for conscious experience. Now, that's not to say that all AIs that are created out of that very type of microchip will be conscious. I think consciousness is a delicate issue depending not just on substrate, but on architecture as well. But I think if we do find that neural prosthetics work in those contexts, that will give us some indication that conscious AI is possible. And I do think that we will know the answer to that question as long as invasive neural implants are pursued the way they are now. Hmm. Uh, one of the other uh, thought experiments that you engage in the book is asking someone to you know walk into a, a future uh, mind design you know uh, lab and okay well which parts of your uh, consciousness do you want to swap out you know do you want to make yourself smarter so you can process uh, uh, information faster do you want to remove the you, you can remove literal parts of your brain, replace them with upgraded artificially or artificial enhancements, um, uh, whatever the substrate's based on. Um, and you pose the question of, well, how much of your brain do you replace and you're still you? Um, so what are you getting at with that kind of thought experiment? Yeah, I love that thought experiment because it gives you this, you know, sense that you're out on a shopping trip, right? But Instead of like, you know, getting like Starbucks coffee beans or whatever, you're, you're, you're getting like enhancements like Zen Garden, um, where you can upgrade to the level of a Zen master in the, you know, blink of an eye, right? Okay. So if we start to replace parts of the brain responsible for consciousness, it could be lights out for us if we don't have the neural basis of consciousness right at the level of microchips. Um, you know, including chip architecture, uh, you know, not just like type, like whether it's silicon or not, but the actual architecture of the chip. I mean, so there, that's one issue, but there are other issues as well. So if I go and I get Zen Garden and then I get Human Calculate, which is a, you know, an enhancement that allows me to say, you know, be like a physics Einstein, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, figure out space time. Nice. Yeah. Um, so that all sounds really cool, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to be smarter or have more control over their mental life? But the problem is after too many enhancements, even setting aside the consciousness question, how do you know that it would even be you, especially if you made the changes rapidly? Um, I mean, these are questions having to do with the nature of the self or person. What is it that allows you to persist over time? I mean, this is an issue that's developed in the literature, in metaphysics, um, on the nature of the person. And one influential theory is simply that the mind is the brain. Well, if your mind's your brain and you replace too many parts of your brain with some other thing, you've actually killed yourself, right? So people like Elon Musk, who advocate merging with AI, you know, in this kind of transhumanist fashion, uh, would be contributing sadly to the death of all the people in Hanson, um, unwittingly, right? I mean, it's pretty, it would be tragic, but that's, it's not to say that those new beings wouldn't be smart. Um, 
And maybe they're conscious. That depends on machine consciousness. But are they a different but being? I, yeah. Yeah, it may not be you, right? I mean, this is a philosophical minefield. Like, we're playing with ideas in philosophy involving the nature of the mind, self, and person. And in philosophy, you know, we've been thinking about these issues for thousands of years, and there are no easy answers to questions about the mind's nature, whether there's a self, whether there's a soul, what the person is. And so to just simply advocate um, merging with AI or a certain position about conscious machines without reflecting on all of this is a bad use of AI technology. Like it would be dangerous to just sort of, you know, upgrade the brain, so to speak. But at the same time, you could be ending the life of the person in question, <laughs> ending <laughs> yeah. the brain. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so these are issues that technologists are authorities on, right? <laughs> but I think people like Silicon Valley gurus, and they tend to defer to AI experts a lot about the proper use of AI technology. And I think we can see already what goes on with the development of AI in Silicon Valley is to follow the money. I mean, you know, it's about profit, which is great. I mean, it drives a lot of technological changes, but we're also running into a lot of issues because it's a, these are emerging technologies. Well, then that, that raises the question of who gets to answer these questions and how do we go about it? Because you've said like we should as as we're increasingly approaching these technologies, working with them, making these developments, we should be conscious of these extreme philosophical difficulties, the the complexities that may not be immediately obvious and taking them seriously and really trying to think them through. And that all sounds like yes, of course. Um, but then – Given that we're talking about potential sentient beings that might have that might have their own interests, that those interests might raise rise to the level of rights, um, how do we go about making these kinds of decisions or answering them? Because so, like philosophy of mind is incredibly complex, and people have been having arguments about it for quite a long time, and the you know, and it's not like it's settled. Um, it feels like we're maybe making progress, but progress in philosophy is a hard thing to to measure, right? Yes, they. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so so yeah, like no, on the one hand we could and there's there's these huge trade-offs because as you said, we can think of like in in one extreme we go too fast and we end up making these beings that in are in a meaningful sense like the kind of conscious things that we think of ourselves as or you know even more intelligent than we are and we treat them incredibly poorly maybe because we don't know we're that we're doing it maybe because we're callous but that's this monstrous wrong that is you know like millions or trillions of lives being destroyed or made miserable and that's awful and we should avoid that but on the other hand we have the potential this technology has the potential for radically improving the lives of everyone on this planet and if we for I hope so. if we forgo that yeah it also has the potential of destroying all of it um but so that's yeah. it's like there are all of these it feels like there every option can lead to possible extremes. Some extremely good, some extremely bad, extremes in different ways. But but we can't we have to somehow decide. 
And so does it make sense? Is this something you think like we should just make these – come to these conclusions as a society, whatever that might mean or that this is better left to the individual say innovators, entrepreneurs, scientists, philosophers trying to work it out but we're telling them like but please think clearly about it. Like where – how do we go about approaching this? Because what you've outlined is just it's, incredible it's complexity. So tricky. You know, so – in the book, I advocate a stance of what I call metaphysical humility, mm -hmm. which means that we really need to understand that there are no easy answers to this question. And I see my job as explaining it to as many people as possible so that they understand that they have to mull over these issues to really get how AI can best promote human flourishing. So I actually suspect that one way to deal with these enhancement decisions might be for there to be some counseling involved when people make enhancement decisions. So, for instance, if you're getting a genetic test um, before you get your results and even before you order the test, many hospitals offer genetic counseling to talk about, you know, the issues involved in seeing whether you have, you know, the gene for breast cancer and whatnot. Um, so something like that, as funny as it sounds, could be extremely useful. And there, I think that the issues involve, you know, philosophical questions about the nature of the self. So that someone who's thinking about getting Zen garden um, or human calculate understands the risks. The risks aren't just medical risks. They're actually, this sounds so funny, but I mean, they're philosophical risks involving the nature of the person. That doesn't mean, though, that we should not allow people to do what they feel is best for themselves, for their own mind. I mean, there will be daring people who don't care so much. And there will be people who have well-founded philosophical views um, who don't even believe in the nature of self. So, you know, there's purpose in philosophy has been extremely influential in arguing that there's no such thing as itself. And think about, you know, the related Buddhist position, you know, that we should actually see the self as, you know, something that's illusory. Um, but my point is to get people to think and to not just take what Silicon Valley says at face value. They're there to make money. All stakeholders need to be involved in questions about human flourishing. So I think it's very important to educate the public. I think AI has to promote human flourishing and improve the lives of sentient beings. And we have to tread very carefully. So the stance of metaphysical humility, I think is important, encouraging people to think about the ultimate question before they use artificial intelligence technology in certain ways, or before, you know, as AI researchers, they develop it in certain ways. It's important to know where it's all headed. And of course, we can't predict the future, but we can recognize that issues involving the nature of the mind, um, the enterprise of mind design, the potential for conscious machines being created, these issues involve philosophical minefields. There's no easy solution to the nature of the self or the person or the question of whether a machine that we develop is conscious if it's highly intellectually sophisticated. 
So we have to tread carefully. So as we develop AI technology, we have to make sure our social development stays in lockstep with the AI development itself. Unless you're an expert in artificial intelligence, um, you're probably going to have a reaction like I had when I first read Susan's book, which is, wow, we really don't understand what consciousness is. We're trying to make decisions about whether or not a machine is going to be conscious, and we don't understand what makes human beings conscious in the first place. So I appreciate Susan's call for a certain level of humility as we approach these conversations. This is a complicated subject, the, the idea of personhood, what makes a person a human being, what makes us conscious. These debates have been going on for hundreds, thousands of years, and now we're trying to apply it to machine technology. We don't have it all figured out. We should approach this with a, a humble spirit. This has radical implications, not just for the future of technology, but the future of humanity as a whole and for future culture. Think about it this way. If it turns out that consciousness, whatever it is, is a thing that can be instilled in machines, that can be instilled in the cloud, doesn't even need to be embodied. Think about the implications for entire sectors of human existence that ostensibly have little to do with technology. Things like religion. Again, this conversation about machine learning and at what point machines become smart enough or aware enough to be considered conscious beings is has broader spillover effects beyond the edges of technology and innovation. It really will change how we have to think about and conceptualize human society as a whole. And given that reality, I think Susan's approach of encouraging epistemological humility is appropriate. Let's pay attention to what smart folks, ethicists, philosophers, um, uh, machine learning uh, programmers, what the smartest people in the room are grappling with. Let's learn from them so that we have the tools uh, to make decisions for ourselves in the future when we actually are building potentially conscious machines. 